welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of August 31st, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Once a demon, always a demon. Museum commemorates Golden High School's 150th anniversary with new exhibits by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Organization helps auto care for single moms by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. Jeffco Public Health observes International Overdose Awareness Day by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. Cruel Hope. Even with a housing voucher, Metro Man faces endless barriers to find disabled grandson a home. By Nina Joss for the Arvada Press. And following up with various articles. Once a demon, always a demon. Museum commemorates Golden High School's 150th anniversary with new exhibit by Corinne Westman. For visitors, Golden History Museum's new exhibit is simply a look at the local high school's 150-year history. But for the alumni and current students, it spans 150 years of memories. The lessons learned in and outside of the classroom, forming friendships that would last a lifetime and all the high school staples like sporting events, musicals, and dances. In short, it commemorates not only a school, but the Golden community itself, alumni described. On August 24th, the museum opened a new exhibit in honor of Golden High School's 150th anniversary. About 200 alumni and family members attended, looking through all the displays on the school's founding, traditions, activities, and more. Curator Stephanie Gilmore and her staff have been working on it for more than six months and interviewed several GHS alumni, students, and staff during their research. The exhibit, which will be up for at least a year, offers a bird's-eye view of GHS history, Gilmore explained. She said her staff had a lot of fun putting everything together and thanked all the alumni and school staff members who donated display items. For instance, class of 1980 alumna Rita Poulter donated her prom dress. She recalled a fun night with her date and friends, saying she was among the prom royalty members as well. Years later, she still had the dress but was unsure what to do with it. When she heard about the museum exhibit, she knew it would be the most appropriate place for it to go, she said. Poulter, who now lives in Morrison, enjoyed going through the exhibit at the August 24th opening reception, saying she particularly liked seeing all her former teachers and classmates in the video slideshow. Buck McPherson, class of 1963 alumnus and lifelong Golden resident, also thought the museum staff had done a great job putting it together. He pointed out a program for the Pajama Game musical, which he and his fellow football players were recruited to dance in. They had such a great time doing it, he said. We did it again the next year. 
The reception also provided a good opportunity for all the various generations of GHS demons to connect. Growing up in Golden, everyone knew everyone, Poulter explained. And because so many GHS alumni are still local, she said, everyone still keeps in touch with each other. As Poulter summarized, once a demon, always a demon. Bob Hayes, class of 1967 alumnus, said GHS is, quote, a school with soul that has helped create a loyal community of students and alumni. Hayes' mother, Virginia, was a class of 1933 alumna and later served as the school librarian. Her son followed in her footsteps as he taught math and coached at the school for 38 years. Now head of the GHS Alumni Association, Hayes helped put together the exhibit's video slideshow. He was pleased with how it all turned out, commenting, there's good vibes in this room. Overall, he and his wife, Amber, the school's athletic secretary, were also excited to see all the generations of demons celebrating together at the August 24th opening reception. They hoped to see everyone back for the September 22nd homecoming parade, saying it'll be bigger than usual this year because of the 150th anniversary. For more information on the new Golden High School exhibit or Golden History Museum and Park, visit goldenhistory.org. Jeffco Public Health observes International Overdose Awareness Day by Joe Davis. Hashtag end overdose. Jefferson County Public Health wants the public to join the department in observing International Overdose Awareness Day on August 31st. The agency is working with the Points West Syringe Services Program to offer a host of information and resources and more for families. The day is also a time to remember those lost to drug overdose. International Overdose Awareness Day is an annual observance focused on raising awareness and reducing stigma around overdose, the announcement reads. The day is also about, quote, remembering those who have died or suffered permanent injury because of drug overdose and stimulating discussion about overdose prevention and harm reduction. Drug-related overdoses and deaths are on the rise and have been since the COVID lockdowns. According to Jeffco Public Health, between 2021 and 22, there were 2,122 hospital admissions for drug-related overdoses in Jefferson County. The year between February 20, 2021 and February 2022 saw 1,823 overdose deaths in the county. Remembrance and education are meant to raise awareness in hopes of reducing overdose and death rates. According to Michael Ford, HIV Prevention and Harm Reduction Team Lead, changing the perception of drug overdose is one way toward lower numbers. We really encourage people in our community to think differently about drug overdose, Ford said. It isn't an isolated phenomenon among small pockets of our community. Many of those we've lost to overdose didn't use drugs regularly or were unprepared for overdose because they'd taken something they thought was safe. Ford and JCPH want the public to know that the face of a drug overdose is not what was projected in the 80s and 90s. The increasing rates require education along with that new perception. Unfortunately, 
Data show overdoses increasingly affecting communities across Colorado, including Jefferson County. Between the potency of fentanyl and an increasingly unpredictable drug supply, it's now more important than ever to make sure you, your loved ones, and your neighbors know how to recognize and respond to an overdose. For more information on International Overdose Awareness Day, check out the Jefferson County Public Health Civic Alert. Teens demonstrate creative cooking skills at Golden Libraries competition by Corinne Westerman. With a few minutes left on the clock, the young chefs were scrambling to finish their dishes, looking for last-minute ingredients and utensils. A strong mixture of aromas wafted through the Golden Library corridors, and one teenager remarked over the hustle and bustle, Welcome to Chaos. On August 25th, the Golden Library hosted its annual Teen Iron Chef competition with about 20 teens participating in two rounds of cooking. There were 13 entrants overall, as some competed as teams. The teens had to include one of three mystery ingredients, yube root, jumbo squid pieces, and calcium powder in each dish. The results ranged from soup, tacos, and burritos to cupcakes, pancakes, and fruit salads. At the end of each round, two professional chefs and a teen volunteer judged the dishes on presentation, creativity, taste, and mystery ingredient incorporation. The professional chefs were impressed with the risks the competitors took, commending them for their creativity and hard work. In the end, 17-year-old Cassie Valverde and 14-year-old Kaisen Mead took first place and went home with the grand prize, their own cast iron skillets. Valverde was also on last year's winning team, but wasn't planning to do it again until a few days beforehand. She told Mead she'd compete if he was on her team. The two friends made a squid-based stir-fry for their first dish, and yube-flavored pancakes for their second. Overall, they said it went better than expected as the young chefs based their dishes on family favorites. Despite that, though, the two said they don't really like cooking and mostly do it just to eat. They do like winning, though, Valverde added. The two were excited to see so many competitors this year, saying it's more fun that way. They hope to have similar numbers if not more, for next year's Teen Iron Chef. Emily Dew, the Golden Library's teen librarian, said the library's teen advisory board has been planning the event for about two months. The biggest piece for collecting was collecting food items for the teens to use. Dew bought about $200 worth of ingredients and asked for donations through the library system and teen patrons. Do and the TAB members present were grateful to have two professional chefs as judges, saying they gave great feedback and made the experience more meaningful. Dylan Sabuco of Denver-based cooking school Sticky Fingers Cooking and John Wilson, executive chef at Minor Saloon and two other local restaurants, were encouraged to see the next generation of chefs getting their start. It's good to see the kids cooking, Wilson said. It helps them connect with where their food comes from. Wilson was worried about the mystery ingredients initially, but he thought the teen chefs executed their dishes very well. 
He also noticed a collaborative environment during the event as the teens shared ingredients and insight with each other. Sabuko got his start as a chef at a similar teen event, so being a teen iron chef judge was a fun, full-circle moment, he said. He now teaches cooking classes at libraries around the Denver area, commenting, they're the greatest resource for kids to do something like this. The four-person team of Lucy Paisley, Macy Ray, Hadley Wilkins, Hadley Wilkins, and Karina Day, all 12 or 13 years old, recommended young Goldenites try their hand at next year's Teen Iron Chef as it's a great time to try out their cooking skills and meet other teens. Paisley and Wilkins knew each other beforehand, but otherwise the four teens hadn't met until the competition. Still, they worked together to make a first-round Yube cupcake with cheesecake frosting and homemade salsa and calcium powder for a second-round nacho plate. It was a fun experience, Paisley said. Everyone should give it a try. You don't even have to be great at cooking. For more information about upcoming teen events at the Golden Library, including the September 8th Washington Spies Escape Room and the October Teen Art Exhibit, visit jeffcolibrary.org slash locations slash gn. Organization Helps with Auto Care for Single Moms by Joe Davis. Hands of the Carpenter is a nonprofit organization in Golden that assists single mothers with their transportation needs. It specifically aids in vehicle maintenance, repair, and purchase. The organization has affiliated shops across the county and is expanding into the metro area. According to Daniel Mondragon, the organization's resource development director, Hands of the Carpenter's mission is to, quote, offer hope to single women with dependent children while providing automobile services, partnering in their efforts to be employed and pursue economic self-sufficiency. The organization was formed after founder Dan Georgopoulos and others established an effort to assist single women in their church community by working on practical needs around their homes, Mondragon said. The volunteers soon learned there were many single women across the Denver metro area who were faced with obstacles preventing self-sufficiency. Georgeopolis became a CEO, a role he still serves today, 20 years later. The organization operates two primary repair facilities in Golden and Aurora. Hands has two primary programs for single mothers it serves, a TLC program and the Lift Up program. Quote, the TLC program is an entry point for all new clients to access a vehicle assessment and an initial automotive service that addresses an immediate transportation need, Mondragon explained. Women who come with a car not worth fixing may be eligible to obtain a car that was donated to Hands and prepared by Hands professional technicians. The Lift Up program goes a bit further for the mothers who need it. Quote, single moms may then be invited into the Lift Up program to receive ongoing repairs, maintenance, and car care education for up to three years to support their effort to maintain employment and achieve economic self-sufficiency. Mondragon said, most clients 
come in an average of two to three times per year. The aim is to teach the women the importance of consistent care of their cars, establish care habits, and help them understand and prepare to afford quality care, car care. Mondragon also mentioned a current program that Hans is running. Hans is currently offering a complimentary oil change and vehicle assessment to single mothers, he said. The aim is to provide information to the vehicle owners before an emergency issue arises. The team is also able to determine if the woman and her car can be invited to formally apply to receive HANS ongoing services. The HANS team offers mothers the expertise of professional mechanics. According to Mondragon, the organization has three experienced and certified professional technicians, two service advisors who keep the women informed and provide education, one professional who drives HANS tow truck to pick up clients and donated cars, and helps handle the sale of donated cars in unusable, unusable in hands programs. They also have automotive services director Crystal Scott, who helps make the process so much easier for women. According to hands client Angelina Trujillo, a Lakewood mother of four kids, Trujillo said that the hands program helped her twice. First with a car from the Lift Up program, it was later totaled in an accident. Trujillo brought another car, bought another car from a private seller recommended by a friend. Hans offered inspection services that Trujillo said revealed some devastating news. Quote, they told me that there were so many repairs that it was way more expensive to fix it than to actually just get a new car, she said. Trujillo took their advice and kept the car, which she said died on the road a few weeks later. Quote, I hadn't even had a chance to walk, talk to them about a new car would look like or anything, Trujillo said. And so that kind of kicks things into high gear. She started working with hands, and soon the organization had a car for Trujillo at 75%, meaning the organization covered 75% of the car's cost. And Aurora, single mom of three who asked for her name not to be used in this article, also shared how hands helped her family. I think it was about March 2023, she said, I was looking for an honest mechanic because the person who used to fix my car moved to California. She received word about the program through her employer's work-life balance program, which led to a referral to hands. As soon as I walked in, everyone was so friendly, she said. You could tell that they cared and wanted to help with whatever was wrong with my car. They checked my whole car out and let me know what was wrong. I was able to get the majority of it fixed at a reduced cost, which was amazing because I am taking care of three kids and my funds are limited. There are a few ways that mothers can apply, according to Margarita Pineda, Client Services Director for Hands of the Carpenter. They can go to thehandsofthecarpenter.org and use the Contact Us page on the website. They can also click contact client services to send an email directly to Pineda and her team. She said mothers can also call the organization directly at 303-551-0307. Pineda also offered the direct email care at ehands.org. The website also has an application that mothers can fill out and submit quotes Client services contacts the applicant after they have submitted their application within 24 hours of receiving it, Pineda said. For now, 
The organization is located in Jefferson and Arapahoe counties with hopes of spreading to the entire Denver metro area. Trujillo and the Aurora Single Mom both recommended, wrote recommend the service to single moms in need of help. If you have a problem, you can call, get in quickly, and they'll fix it for you. If you have to leave your car overnight, they provide a loaner car. That way you can continue to take care of whatever business you have to take care of while your car is being repaired. The prices are reasonable, and I didn't have to pay an arm and a leg to get my car in working order. This is by far the best program and auto body shop I have ever been to. I will never go anywhere else. You can find more information on Hands of the Carpenter and an application for services on handsofthecarpenter.org. Cruel Hope Even with a housing voucher, Metro Man faces endless barriers to find disabled grandson a home. By Nina Joss George Vanesh drives an hour round trip each day to visit his grandson, Justin. Justin is a kind, caring, non-judgmental young man, says his grandfather. He keeps up on the news and likes to discuss current events. In his free time, Justin enjoys music, concerts, and paranormal television shows. He also lives with intellectual disabilities, which have impacted him since childhood. Yet, at 32 years old... Justin lives on his own in an apartment in Lafayette. As Justin's primary companion and caregiver, Vanesh has spent much of his life memorizing the ins and outs of programs and services that many adults with disabilities rely on. From Medicaid to food assistance programs to housing choice vouchers and more. It's taken me years to learn all this stuff, Vanesh said. At age 79, he is starting to worry about how he can sustainably support his grandson. The distance from Arvada, where Vanesh lives, to Lafayette is feeling more and more challenging to travel as the years go by. He wants to move Justin closer, but for months he's faced hurdle after hurdle. Despite all his research, paperwork, phone calls, meetings, and more paperwork, Vanesh hasn't been able to find an apartment that will work. The problem comes down to what's commonly called a housing choice voucher. Justin received a voucher in 2018, about a year and a half after applying for the rent subsidization program. He was luckier than many, as some people wait on lists for years, sometimes more than a decade before being selected for the program that's part of the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. The program, sometimes known as Section 8, aims, quote, to help very low-income families, the elderly, and the disabled afford decent, safe, and sanitary housing, according to HUD. Justin is both low-income and disabled in the eyes of the government. His income was about $800 per month, less than 7% of the area median income in his county when he applied for a voucher. This money came from a monthly stipend for people with disabilities, sometimes called supplemental security income. Since then, however, Vanesh has learned that a voucher is not a guaranteed ticket to housing. It's not easy, he said, gesturing at a pile of paperwork, 
full of handwritten notes and math problems. Even now, with all this homework that I have, I am still never quite sure about the exact steps. Through his deep dive into the program and its many intricacies, Vinesh has uncovered a system with pitfalls at every turn. Sometimes these challenges come from the administrative complexities of the program. Other times they are rooted in discrimination. As Vinesh has worked tirelessly to find a home for his grandson, housing advocates have taken steps to strengthen laws meant to protect people like Justin. A new law on this front, which goes into effect this month, has resulted in resistance from Colorado landlords. While they concede that people with housing vouchers can struggle to find a place, they say the problem should be addressed by making the program more economically attractive, not mandating how landlords interact with it. Moving Justin closer. Vanesh has been living in the same Arvana home for over 50 years. Since his wife passed away a few years ago, he divides his time between taking care of his dog, Jasper, and his grandson. Jasper in the morning, Justin in the afternoon, he said. Justin's disabilities, which impact his social interactions, have made it challenging for him to make friends over the years. Vinesh said that sometimes that causes Justin to be sad sometimes, making the daily visits even more important. If I don't go up there, he's just by himself, he said. As Vinesh gets older, the long drive is becoming more challenging. It's hard on me, he said. I'm getting old, and that traffic is dangerous, so I'd like to get him closer. Otherwise, I'm telling him we're just going to have to figure out some days a week that I take off. But Vinesh has had little luck since he began searching for a closer apartment eight months ago. Because Justin has a voucher, moving is a complicated process that involves a staggering number of considerations. First, prospective apartments need to qualify under a payment standard set by HUD. That means the unit, plus utilities, has to be at or under a specific price. Once Vinesh finds an apartment at the correct rate in a desired area, there has to be a vacancy that lines up with the end of Justin's current lease. He also has to add time for a federally mandated inspection of the new unit. If the new apartment is in a different county, Vinesh would need to transfer Justin's rental subsidy across housing authority lines. The process is possible, but it adds extra steps that take time. In a fast-paced rental market, where landlords want tenants confirmed as quickly as possible, the timeline of these extra steps can complicate options. Add those requirements to the personal desires any person may have for an apartment, like in-unit laundry or a place to sit outside, and Vinesh has a puzzle on his hands. It's a puzzle that gets more challenging when some landlords, Vinesh says, won't even take a glance at Justin's application. I have lost count of the apartment managers who told me that they don't accept vouchers since Justin got a voucher in 2018, Vinesh said. They don't want to deal with the bureaucracy and perceived problems with low-income renters. Discrimination over source of income. The apartment managers who told Vinesh they wouldn't accept housing choice vouchers if they said so after January 2021 could have been breaking the law. That's when House Bill 21332 took effect. 
outlawing housing discrimination based on a person's source of income. The state law added this category to other protected classes, including disability, race, color, creed, familial status, and more. In practice, this law means more landlords in Colorado with more than three rental units must accept housing choice vouchers. They cannot use Justin's federal aid as a reason to turn him away. Despite facing the issue, Vinesh never filed a complaint with state officials. The process seemed cumbersome and time-consuming, and it was more important to him to put his time and energy toward finding Justin a home, he said. Vinesh isn't the only one concerned that landlords discriminate in this way. Housing advocates across the metro area say they've seen evidence of housing discrimination based on source of income. Complaints about housing vouchers and landlords refusing to accept them or refusing to count the value of the voucher is the number three source of complaint that we received in the past 18 months, said John Paul Morosi, Outreach and Education Coordinator at the Denver Metro Fair Housing Center. The center is a private nonprofit organization that works to investigate matters related to housing discrimination across the metro region. Although there may be some bad actors, Morosi noted that most discrimination against voucher holders comes from landlords who are unaware of the law. From our experience, the vast majority of landlords don't intentionally discriminate in this way, he said, but it is incumbent on them to educate themselves. In a few cases, discrimination against vouchers holders is outright, but more commonly, landlords create barriers for voucher holders without doing anything that appears to break the law, advocates say. One of these barriers is the minimum income requirement. This is when a landlord requires a potential tenant to prove they make a certain ratio of income to rent. Vinesh ran into this problem recently when he was checking out an apartment in Arvada for Justin. Right, as he started to think it might work out, the apartment manager shattered his plan. They said, oh, you know, we can take a voucher, sure, but you still have to prove three times the rent income, Vinesh said. With Justin's income, all from federal aid, this requirement was impossible to meet. The Income Barrier Aubrey Wild, the Advocacy Program Director at Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, said income requirements are one of the biggest barriers for people with vouchers. We have folks with vouchers who technically should be able to use those vouchers in most cases, being asked to prove that they earn three, four, five, even eight times the rent amount in income, Wild said. Recounting numbers from her and her and other advocates work with people searching for housing. Jack Reagan-Bogan, Deputy Executive Director at the Colorado Poverty Law Project, said he and other advocates consider this behavior to be a form of discrimination. They're not saying anymore, we won't accept Section 8, but they are discriminating based on the amount of income, Reagan-Bogan said. Although many voucher holders can't meet income requirements, Morosi from the Denver Metro Fair Housing Center said the voucher itself is a dependable sign that the tenant will be able to pay the rent each month. If you look at it from the landlord's point of view, this is a guaranteed source of income, he said. They know for a fact that this individual has a voucher and that money will be there for months and months to come. 
But House Bill 21332 sets no limits to the income level a landlord can require. And for people with vouchers, there's no clarity about whether a minimum income requirement applies to the whole rent or just the portion of rent a voucher holder is paying out of pocket. This legal blurriness has created a situation where landlords can reject a voucher holder for not making three or more times the full rent amount and income. A new law. Through months of lobbying and testifying, the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless and the Colorado Poverty Law Project worked with legislators on a new law this year, Senate Bill 23184, that addresses income requirement barrier for voucher holders. It will go into effect in August. It caps the minimum income requirement at two times the cost of rent, Wild said. The Colorado Apartment Association, a leading state group for landlords, was a vocal opponent of the bill. Spokesperson Drew Hamrick said the income requirement cap, which will allow people to spend 50% of their income on rent, will set tenants up for failure. Quote, Anyone signing a contract that they're promising to pay that much of their income in rent is going to default under it, he said. No one can afford to do that. Hamrick said landlords do not care about the source of a tenant's money, but they care that they get paid. In landlords' eyes, he said, the housing voucher program adds the risk of additional expenses they may not be compensated for. These potential expenses include rent lost, while officials inspect the unit to see if it meets federal standards, He added there are other risks, like the chance that a tenant might not be able to pay for repairing property damage. Instead of mandating that landlords accept vouchers, Hamrick said, legislators should work to make the the program more financially attractive for landlords. He said the new cap is not a sustainable decision for rental housing providers who will have to accept tenants more likely to default on rent. He added that more defaults would likely make rents rise across the market over time. Quote, the Colorado legislature has substituted their own business judgment for the judgment of the entire market and made a bad business decision here, he said. Reagan Bogan, however, said he thinks people paying half their income on rents will still be able to make ends meet. Low-income people he said, have always had to be resourceful and housing is a necessity they deserve the opportunity to have. Paying half of one's income on rent is not ideal, but what's worse was the previous status quo where if people weren't earning an arbitrary multiplier of what rent is, then they could very possibly find themselves either in the homeless shelter or on the street, he said. He added that the new number reflects reality in Colorado where more than half of households are rent burdened meaning they are paying more than the recommended 30% of their income on rent, according to recent U.S. Census Bureau data. For people with vouchers, the new law also clarifies that minimum income requirements must only apply to the portion of rent the tenant pays out of their own pocket. In addition, it prohibits landlords from considering the credit score of an applicant who is on a voucher. Wild said credit like the minimum income requirement, has historically been a barrier for voucher holders in finding housing. Hope for Justin. 
Vinesh said the new law is good for people at low income levels like Justin. Since voucher holders generally pay 30 to 40% of their income on rent, the vast majority will now always qualify in terms of income. I think the law will have a fairly significant positive impact, Vinesh said, reflecting on the times Justin has been turned down on the grounds of income. That new provision, I think, takes that off the table. Vinesh said, the more he knows and understands the laws, the more he is feeling prepared and empowered going into conversations with apartment managers. I was just waiting for them to say, we don't accept vouchers, he said, describing one recent meeting. I was ready to pull out my printed out copies of the statutes that are all highlighted. But people who don't know their rights don't have that opportunity to stick up for themselves, he said. To help educate more tenants and landlords on the rights and rules related to housing discrimination, the Denver Metro Fair Housing Center launched a campaign in April about source of income discrimination. Most prejudice is rooted in the lack of knowledge, Morosi said. We're optimistic that as we get more knowledge out about the voucher program, we'll see a decrease in the discrimination that we've been seeing against voucher holders. As months have gone by, laws have been passed and Vinesh has gotten help. He has maintained hope for Justin, but it hasn't been easy. With the number of apartments that have not worked out for his grandson, Vinesh was hesitant to say one law would fix the whole process. I think some of these folks can be pretty creative if they don't really don't want to accept vouchers, he said. But the new law is a step forward, he said. Armed with his stack of papers and knowledge of his rights, Vinesh is dedicated to continue trying for the sake of himself, for the sake of Justin, and for the sake of other Coloradans who have struggled to put a roof over their heads. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Committed to Serving by Giles Clayson. From Denverite, I'll be reading Improper Supervision in McAuliffe School Seclusion Rooms Violated District Policy DPS Investigation Finds by Melanie Asmar, Chalkbeat, Colorado, and Warren Village 3, the first supportive housing project tied to City Voucher Program, breaks ground at new 89-unit complex by Desiree Matherin. From Westward, I'll be reading, Adaptive Athletes Can Get a Discount on Epic Passes But Not Icon by Benjamin Neufeld. And, First Denver Property Earns a $999 Fine for Not Getting Rental License by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice, Committed to Serving, by Giles Clayson. Personal growth is a complicated endeavor. It requires self-awareness and effort. Not everyone is willing to take those steps, but Ray isn't one of those people. He isn't afraid of what he may find as he digs deeper into his psyche because he has been on a quest for discovery for the past several years. Mostly, this self-examination process was forced upon him by circumstances. Some of it was through personal pursuit, 
especially after realizing how his choices impacted those he cared about. Ray has lived on and off the streets throughout his life. Occasionally, he has found an escape from homelessness. These respites have involved good times, like his marriage. It has also involved his incarceration for drug and theft charges. I know I'm a bum, Ray said. I look at myself and I hate myself. I hate who I am and where I'm at. When I take a shower, I take it really quick. I get dressed fast. I can't look in the mirror. I can't do this anymore. I say to God, take me. I'm done. I don't think about it. It just comes out. After explaining this, Ray takes a beat and reminds himself that his belief in God means he can't give in to his emotions and he can't give up. There are times I want to give up, Ray said, but when he gets to that point, he remembers that his faith in God gives him something to keep him going. Ray also believes he must persevere to help others. That is why now I live for other people, Ray said. Ray's service to others comes in many forms. He has developed an incredible capacity for empathy and is considered a counselor for others living in tents and shelters. He will talk non-stop once you get him started. But his real gift is to listen and care for others. That gift has earned him the moniker, the counselor, among many on the street. I'm a strong person, and I want to keep going. I want to give to people, to my friends and my family, to others who have less than me. I want to help them, Ray said. The people on the street, they love me because I help them, Ray said. I'm honest and I'm genuine. People ask me, where did you come from? And I say, I'm here for the work of the Lord. Ray's commitment to faith and service is a big change from who he was once. He came from an abusive home. When Ray was a child, his father, who was never around, died in prison. Ray's mother, whom he described as a gangster and drug dealer, abandoned him when he was five years old. He was left alone in a house for over a week. He tried to start a fire to cook something, but the fire raged out of control and burned down the house. Ray was saved by firefighters and then was placed in foster care. After years in a group home, Ray was placed back in the care of his mother. He wasn't with her for more than a month before he ran away and was returned to foster care. I didn't know how to love my mother. She didn't know how to love me either, Ray said. I found a family in foster care. Through it all, Ray remained steadfast. He learned to drive a semi-truck, got married, and did his best to piece together his own version of a happy life. Ray never learned to be normal, though. That was partly because he never had the support to understand how to build stability. He was very much a slave to his desires and emotions. I have never felt love in my life, Ray said. The love you get from your mom and dad, I never got that. Where do you learn love if not from your mom and dad when you're young? Ray doesn't blame others for where he has ended up. He is pensive and thinks frequently about what he has missed out on and how he can thrive despite that. In prison, I didn't get one letter. No one cared enough about me to send me even one letter, Ray said. That was a wake-up call. I decided if I was going to connect with others, I had to learn to love myself. So I started trying. When Ray got out of prison, he tried to repair his relationship with his wife. I was abusive. I never hit her, and I never yelled at her or called her names, Ray said. But I was selfish, and I stayed out all night and slept with anyone I wanted. 
It was abusive behavior in my mind. His wife died of a fentanyl overdose before they really had a chance to mend their relationship. Ray was able to reconnect with his mother before she died of cirrhosis. According to Ray, his mother's doctor had told her she had less than a year to live, but she went on to live for many more years. Ray said it was during his time in prison, and also while he was living on the streets, that he learned to care for others. Today, Ray aims to live in service to others, even as he hustles to find a way off the streets. Recently, Ray talked a stranger into lending him a lawnmower so he could mow lawns to make a few bucks. Once he got the machine, Ray went door to door and explained his situation to those who answered. He offered to mow people's lawns for whatever amount of money they were comfortable paying, and if the person couldn't pay, he cut their lawn for free. Sometimes people need a little help, said Ray. If I can cut their lawn and help them when they have nothing to pay, well, that's enough for me, he added. Ray watches out for his friends and others experiencing homelessness. He listens to them and shares what insight or helpful opinions he has. Ray is tired of the ever-presence of drugs. He says he knows people only turn to drugs as an escape from their misery, but he has seen too many individuals die from drugs. Ray carries Narcan with him, and he has used it on several occasions to revive individuals who overdosed. He wants to help heal people's bodies and spirits, and he's willing to do whatever is necessary for them. So he tries to always be prepared for anything the streets may throw at him. I think the Lord is with me, Ray said. I've had people treat me like a dog, but God, he's been with me. I am trying to surrender to him. That's the path. The only thing I can do is try and to serve others. The next two articles are from Denverite. Improper supervision in McAuliffe school seclusion rooms violated district policy, DPS investigation finds, by Melanie Asmer, Chalkbeat, Colorado. A Denver public schools investigation found that former McAuliffe International School principal Kurt Dennis placed students or directed staff to place students in two seclusion rooms last year without proper supervision and then either locked or held the door shut. That's according to a three-page letter summarizing the findings that is addressed to Dennis and was provided to Chalkbeat by Dennis's attorney, David Lane. The letter says that the facts support a finding that Dennis violated DPS's seclusion policy. The rooms were in use from November 18th through the end of the school year, the letter says. The investigation found that McAuliffe's staff continued using these rooms for seclusion despite being aware that at least one of the rooms, which was damaged during the course of the school year, was not safe or appropriate for this purpose, the letter says. However, the letter says there was insufficient evidence to support an allegation that Dennis disproportionately placed students of color in the seclusion rooms. Dennis was fired as principal of McAuliffe in July in the aftermath of a televised interview he gave to Nine News in March expressing concerns about gun violence and student safety. The Denver School Board voted last week to uphold Dennis's firing. The allegations about the seclusion room came to light after the firing but before the vote. DPS policy requires that one or more staff members accompany a student inside a seclusion room, in an interview Thursday, Lane said Dennis did not violate district policy because the policy doesn't specify 
what to do if a student is acting violently toward the staff member in the room by hitting, kicking, and spitting at them, which he said was happening at McAuliffe. There was no policy on what to do in those circumstances, so there was no policy violation, Lane said. Dennis and Lane have denied that students were alone in the room because staff monitored them through a window in the door. Lane also disputes DPS's numbers and verbiage. The letter implies four students were put in seclusion, while Lane claims it was two. The letter also mentions two seclusion rooms, but Lane said there was only one de-escalation room. Lane said he plans to sue DPS on Dennis's behalf in federal court next week. Colorado law allows schools to seclude a student alone inside a room with the door closed as long as the student is monitored through a window or by video camera. In the wake of the McAuliffe allegations, State Representative Regina English, a Colorado Springs Democrat, said she wants to ban the use of seclusion rooms statewide. English made the announcement at a press conference in Denver earlier this month alongside three Denver school board members. The issue is already on lawmakers' radar. A 2020 Chalkbeat investigation uncovered weak state oversight of seclusion, and in 2022, lawmakers passed new limits and reporting requirements for both seclusion and restraint, which means forcibly restricting a student's movement. DPS policy has long gone a step further than state law. DPS calls its practice of requiring a staff member to be in the room monitored seclusion or modified seclusion. In the 2018-2019 school year, the district reported 111 instances of modified seclusion, according to a review written by DPS staff and obtained by Chalkbeat through an open records request. Updated numbers for the 2022-2023 school year were not immediately available Thursday. Some of Colorado's other large school districts reported even more incidents of seclusion in 2018 and 2019, according to reviews written by those districts. Young students with disabilities were disproportionately subjected to seclusion, according to the reviews. The State Education Department can investigate the misuse of seclusion, in 2020, for example, the department found that a rural school district violated state law when it secluded a kindergartner in a small booth in the nurse's office normally used for hearing tests. The kindergartner had wet his pants, refused to change his clothes, and kicked and hit two staff members, according to the findings. The department found that secluding him in the booth was a violation for several reasons, including that the seclusion was used as a punitive form of discipline and that the booth did not have adequate ventilation or was not big enough. The Colorado Department of Education is now investigating the use of seclusion at McAuliffe, according to a department spokesperson, but the DPS investigation is complete. DPS interviewed three students and 24 witnesses as part of its investigation, according to the letter summarizing the findings. Dennis declined to speak to investigators, who instead used public statements made by him or his attorney. Dennis told the Denver Post earlier this month that he had a lock put on the door of a seclusion room that was later removed. Denver School Board Vice President Ante Anderson said at a press conference Thursday that the full 33-page investigation report, which was provided to board members but has not yet been made public, contains stories that have kept me up this past week. 
To the students who may have suffered, my heart aches for the pain you have endured, Anderson said. Saying, I'm sorry, hardly feels adequate. DPS denied an open records request by Chalkbeat for a copy of the 33-page report, arguing that it was a privileged document. Lane said neither he nor Dennis has seen the 33-page report. Warren Village 3, the first supportive housing project tied to City Voucher Program, breaks ground at new 89-unit complex by Desiree Matherin. Reba Jones moved to Denver in 2013 looking for change and ready to start a family. By 2016, that family was coming together. Her son was due that year and she had given birth to a healthy girl years earlier. But her boyfriend had become abusive. It was a cycle she'd known since her youth and she was looking to break it. I knew the only way to break that cycle, to unravel the chaos and give my kids a new beginning, was for me to get my own self together, Jones said. Turning over a new leaf is the hardest thing humans have ever done in life. Where you're at, even though it may not be the best living situation, it's comfortable, but you can't stay that comfortable for too long. Her first step toward finding safety and security was reaching out to Warren Village, a nonprofit that assists single-parent families who are unhoused or experiencing housing instability with reaching independence and self-reliance. She moved into one of their supportive housing communities in 2016 and began working to reach self-sufficiency. Jones said that with therapy, financial guidance, and education opportunities, she was ready to give herself and her children the life she was looking for. I woke up every morning and Warren Village was like, All right, who do you want to be today and what do you want to do, Jones said. To know that there was someone there asking me those questions in ways I've never been asked before, it truly set the tone. Now my kids will never know how it looks to stand in another government assistance line. Jones shared her story on Wednesday as Warren Village and several city and state organizations celebrated the groundbreaking of Warren Village 3, a new supportive housing complex in the Athmar Park neighborhood. It's the third housing project brought forth by the nonprofit. The building at 1390 West Alameda Avenue, next to the Women's Bean Project, will house 89 income-restricted units for families earning up to 30%, 50%, or 80% of the area median income. For a family of three, that ranges from $33,510 to $89,360. Within those units, 79 will be for families exiting homelessness and in need of supportive services. Those services include financial counseling, mental health assistance for both parents and children, moving assistance, case management, and legal services. The 2023 point-in-time count, which captures a snapshot of people experiencing homelessness, found that there were 2,101 families in the Denver metro, up from 1,277 the previous year. Warren Village 3 will also be the first supportive housing complex to have an early learning center on site, according to city officials. Some income-restricted properties also have child care on site. Another first at the complex is the use of new city housing vouchers. In 2020, Denver voters approved a 0.25% sales tax to create the Homelessness Resolution Fund to address homelessness.
With that funding, the city was able to create project-based vouchers. Typically, federal and state vouchers are hard to get, and once a person receives a voucher, then they face the tough task of finding a landlord willing to accept it. City vouchers will be tied to specific projects, like this one in St. Francis Center West, another affordable housing complex in the works. Once a person qualifies for the voucher, the apartment comes with it. A total of 29 units will include project-based vouchers funded by the city, and an additional 50 units will receive vouchers from the Denver Housing Authority. These vouchers are meant to ensure selected residents won't pay more than 30% of their income on rent. The vouchers will be provided to the units for over 20 years and will cost up to $22.7 million from, the, from Denver's Homelessness Resolution Fund. At the groundbreaking, several city and state officials spoke on the funding for the project. Congresswoman Diana DeGitt secured about $4 million through a government spending bill Congress approved in December. Some other projects funded by the bill included the purchase and conversion of Stay Inn Hotel and the construction of Urban Peaks New Shelter. The Department of Housing Stability provided $3.8 million in gap financing for construction and almost $1.78 million for supportive services over 15 years. Other public finance partners include the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority, Colorado Division of Housing, and DHA. The project is set to be completed in 18 months. After sharing her story, Jones added that she currently sits on the Warren Village Board of Trustees as the field office project engineer. She's also a part of the programming committee that sets forth the blueprint plans for families during their stay. It's a way for her to give back and show others that if they need help, they can have it. It means giving someone else the tools and helping them get in there a quicker time frame than I did, Jones said. Poverty is painful. Now we have options. We're breaking the ties to financial trauma so that we can build a life that we're proud of. The following articles are from Westward. Adaptive Athletes Can Get a Discount on Epic Passes But Not Icon by Benjamin Neufeld. It's a question Colorado skiers and snowboarders ask themselves every fall. Epic or Icon? But what if you're a disabled athlete looking for a discounted mountain pass? A welcome break after the bank-breaking expense of adaptive ski gear equipment and one that would allow you to visit numerous resorts. Then the choice is easy. As a way to increase participation and representation of all abilities in skiing and riding, Vail Resorts offers a significant discount on the Epic Pass for adaptive skiers, according to Vail Resorts Director of Corporate Communications, Jamie Alvarez. Altera Mountain Company, which sells the slightly newer Icon Pass, does not. Adaptive athletes like Mark Urich, who had his right leg amputated at the age of two, want to persuade Altera to change that. Urich, who grew up in Loveland, didn't try skiing until his mid-twenties. But when he did, he recalls, I was like, wow, this is something that I love. I tried it for two days and quit my job and moved to the mountains. Yurik sometimes skis on his one leg and sometimes uses a sit-ski, a setup designed for those who either don't have legs or don't have function in their legs. For people like Yurik's wife and many others, 
The Sitski is their only option, and it's not cheap. A basic frame is like $5,000, Yurik says. The shock is around $2,000. The seat bucket is $1,000, but you want it custom modeled like a pair of ski boots. Outriggers cost $750, but the costs can go higher depending on the impairment. When you get into people's ski and board prosthetic legs,